0: This January, over 750 OA members gathered in Los Angeles for OA's 50th birthday party. Events included keynote speakers, multiple long-timer panels, workshops, a big book boot camp, and even an appearance by Roseanne S. If you'd like CDs or MP3s of any or all of these sessions, go to OA50th.org and then follow the link to the recordings. That's OA50th, 50thorg Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Peggy. I'm Peggy, and I'm an absent and compulsive eater. Hi, Peggy. It's really nice to be here. I used to live in this area, and I used to go to meetings at Second and Hill. And I moved to Palos Verdes 20 years ago. But first, I have to tell you something. I went to um, the World Service Business Conference a few years ago in New Mexico. There were 200 compulsive eaters there from all over the world. People sent delegates And at least two dozen people, when they met me and found I was from L.A., they said, that's where the speakers come from. So we, they said, really, they said, we listen to the speakers. In our town, we don't have anybody with a lot of time or a lot of program. We're like the blind leading the blind here, and we're all trying to get it. We have some O.A. literature, but we don't have anybody with time to sponsor the other people. So we really get experience and strength and hope from the Speakers Bureau And we listened to every word. I just want you to know what a wonderful service you're doing here for so many people all over the world. I didn't. I had no idea. I was the speaker here in um, May 2007, and in June 2007, I went to England. I was there for about a month, and I got an apartment by Hyde Park and walked over to the nearest OA meeting. A couple days later. And um, they asked if there was anybody from out of town. So I said, I'm Peggy from Los Angeles. And I can't believe it. At the end of the meeting, this girl came up and she said, "You're Peggy from Los Angeles. I just heard you on the speaker's bureau this morning, and I was hoping I would meet you someday." <laughs> and so she just couldn't believe that she was actually meeting me. <laughs> so we're we're all over the world, and we help each other all over the world, and. That's the only reason why I'm still abstinent. I've been abstinent um, for 23 years since 1980, February 86. It gets easier the longer you do it, I promise. And it's really nice to have all these years of being comfortable with myself, all these years of freedom from the wreck that I was before I came here. I've been married to the same man for 20 years, and he's a nice man. He's a good man. And I've lived in the same house for 20 years. That's the most stability I've ever had in my life. I've been clean and sober for 25 years, and that's connected to my overeating thing. And I have a daughter, a lovely daughter, who has never seen me do anything bizarre with food like I used to do. I'd be embarrassed to death if she knew what an animal I used to be how weird I was with food and she hasn't um, grown up with food issues of her own that she learned from a compulsive eating mother because I haven't done it all her life I've been abstinent since before she was born and she's off to college now and I get to start a whole new life which I'm working on too I will back up and qualify I grew up kind of in Phoenix, but we came to California when I was 11. And I've been a musician all my life, and I've been in the entertainment industry all my life, and done some acting and worked on the production side. And I've played music and made records and CDs and videos and been in movies. I mean, a couple more that are coming out this year. So I've been doing that for a very long time. And that's one of the constants that's been in my life, Um, Hi, there's another familiar face, I know. So in San Francisco, a couple of things happened. My mother divorced my father. I went to junior high school in San Francisco. I went to high school in South America. We came back to the Midwest for one year, and then we came to Los Angeles. And I've been here ever since. Every time my mother got married or divorced, we moved. And that's why I moved around so much. People ask if my father was in the military. I had several fathers. But I got from that a couple of really nice stepbrothers that I'm still really close to today. They're older than me. And I grew up traveling and working with male musicians a lot. I came out of it kind of a tomboy as a person. But today I kind of like myself. And that's one of the benefits of being abstinent too. I was always, people thought of me as tall and slim, but they didn't see my thighs. I kept them well hidden because that's where all my extra weight was. And I was very self-conscious about my thighs and my upper arms, and I dieted all the time, trying to get rid of those. In the summer of 1976, I was here, and I, I read 42 books about dieting and nutrition, and I tried them all, and I lost a couple of pounds. But then I found alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine, and then if I if I did those, I didn't have to eat at all, and I could go and go all day and all night and all time. People more famous than me were doing it, and they gave it to me, so it must be all right, right? So I went on the alcohol, cocaine, nicotine diet, and I lived on that for a while. I don't recommend it because they're addictive substances on their own, and after a while they took away much more from me than just my weight. But I did lose a lot of weight. By 1980, I weighed 101 pounds, and I'm 5'8". I I was very skinny. I had malnutrition. I had been ill off and on for a couple of years, and I hadn't gone to a doctor because I knew they would tell me to stop living on alcohol and drugs and start eating. I'm too smart to go and hear what I don't want to hear. I'm not going to pay somebody to tell me to stop doing what I want to do. But finally, I had to go. And um, this doctor told me um, that I had malnutrition and I was dehydrated. I thought how can I be dehydrated? I, do, I drink. I do nothing but drink. <laughs> and really, I was exercising every day, swimming two miles every day, and running and doing aerobics and playing shows at night where you're nonstop for an hour, two hours, I was eating like half of a dinner salad now and then, half of a lobster tail, and then go in the bathroom and run in place in the bathroom to try and run off the calories. It was insane the way I was living. And at that time, my skin was a pasty, bluish color. I had malnutrition so badly that... I was getting bruises all over. My hair had gotten thin, and it was like straw because of the lack of nutrients in my body. So I had to do something. I had to change something. I changed boyfriends, and I decided that I would eat in the mornings until noon, and then I would do my alcohol, cocaine, nicotine diet for the rest of the day, and that's how I would try to control, control my weight control all my drugs, control all my friends, control my career, control everything. And it was a miserable way to live. I did that for another three and a half years. And it was miserable to eat food in the mornings and watch the clock all day. Toward the end of that, I was eating sort of grazing at food all day and still trying to make the alcohol and drugs work, and they didn't work anymore. And I was losing friends, and my career was going downhill. My money was going downhill. Everything was going downhill. I had to admit that it, that it wasn't working. And I was going to psychiatrists. I went to those for a couple of years. I wanted them to tell me how to get along with people, but I didn't tell them that I did alcohol and drugs every day. <laughs> Finally, I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired, that I told this psychiatrist that I was living on the alcohol, cocaine, nicotine diet and that I was starting to gain weight anyway. And I was scared to death. And she said, well, you're an alcoholic. I said, I know. I've <laughs> known for years. So. so she told me to go to AA. So I, I started in AA. And as soon as I quit drinking and doing cocaine and smoking, I started eating, just binging wholesale, binging on bags of stuff, boxes of stuff, cartons of stuff, eating a carton of something while I'm in my car driving to a store to get another carton because I know it's going to be gone in half an hour. Yeah, some of you have done that, huh? And, And I was eating whole chickens. I was eating things that I had never even, I didn't even like them. I was just eating to be doing this, you know, to be stuffing something in me all the time. I was so nervous and compulsive. So the kind people in AA told me about our sister program, OA, and I did not want to work one more program. But I went to an OA meeting because I was that desperate, and I met some people there who were just like me. They had done the same insane things with food that I had done, but they weren't doing it anymore. And I sat there, and I shut my mouth, and I listened, and I wondered, what are they doing? Whatever they're doing, I'm going to do it too, because if it's working for them, it might work for me too. There was a big difference between them and the psychiatrists. The psychiatrist told me, this is what's wrong with you, and this is what you should do about it. Because I read it in a book by a dead German guy who wrote it 100 years ago, and you're paying me 125 an hour, and that's why you should. I didn't do anything they said because it was all things I had already tried anyway. They had no idea what it was like to be me. I knew that their solutions wouldn't work because I had already tried them. So I had run out of psychiatrists too. and But these people in OA, they were saying, in, in AA, I was doing what the people in AA did and I was staying sober and clean. So I decided I would do what the people in O A did. A nice lady sponsored me and she's still absent and today I know that because I see her on T V sometimes. She's an actress. And right away I look at her thighs to see if she's still absent. <laughs> because if we aren't, you know, it's, it shows up. It shows up fast. So um and and she is If people there were kind to me. I didn't even want to be there. I didn't want to be like them, but they were kind to me anyway. They were the kindest people I had ever met. It was the first actual kindness I had ever known in my life. Before that, when anybody was nice to me, it was because they wanted something in exchange. These people in AA and OA didn't expect anything. They didn't even ask me my last name. They didn't ask me for money. I would walk out and they would never see me again. So why were they being so nice to me? I had to go home and think about that one for a bit. And after a while I learned that we freely give what was freely given to us. That's how we keep the program going. And that's how we stay abstinent. That's how we're all helping each other stay abstinent. None of us can do it on our own. But we can all do it if we help each other. In here, I have a power greater than myself. I have a lot of people helping me to do something I can't do by myself. And I couldn't, I couldn't stay this way without the whole bunch of you. Ah, so I am a member of the human race. I started to feel like just one of the folks, a member of the human race. For the first time, I found a peer group, some people I could give and take with, and we would always be equal. I wasn't superior to them, and I wasn't inferior to them. We came from all walks of life, and we were doing one thing together. We were helping each other stay abstinent, and that's all. We didn't have to argue about anything, because we didn't have to talk about anything else. There were people in there that I had nothing else in common with, and it didn't matter. We only had one thing in common, and that's all that mattered. And it's a wonderful thing. It's still going because we keep freely giving what was freely given to us. That was in the 80s. In those days, we worked the steps from the AA Big Book. OA didn't have their own book yet. So everybody who's a long-timer, who's been abstinent since before 1990, worked the steps from the Big Book. And it's a little different than the OA Book. And I like it because... Today I sponsor people the same way that I was sponsored. When somebody asks me to sponsor them and I say yes, the next thing they want to know is what do we do now? Well, we establish your food plan and we work the steps. So I get them into action right away. We establish their food plan. When I came in, we had gray sheep. But now we have that pamphlet with six different diets. I have a talk with them about what's same eating to them. Can they eat three meals a day and nothing in between and feel healthy and lose weight? We start with some food plan that they can stick to. Mine is as simple as this. There are certain foods that are binge foods for me. If I eat them, I know I'll keep eating them. So those are on my abstinence list. I abstain from those because they're just like alcohol or drugs. If I eat a little of them, I can't stop But there's a whole world of other foods I can eat and not think about them afterwards. I can eat vegetables. I can eat protein. I can eat all kinds of things. I have a chart at home. Um, I'll have to skip around a bit. Since then, I've become a nutritionist, and I've done um, nutrition workshops for OA groups. I'm going to do one for KDAC pretty soon. And I did one at World Service a couple of years ago about food plans and sponsoring. And I made a big poster, and on one side of it is these desserts and snack foods. That's what I abstain from. And on the other side, in colorful felt pens, is all the other foods I get to eat. There's several pages of foods that I do get to eat. I can eat anything else in the world except my little binge foods. So I don't have to feel deprived that way. There's a lot of foods I can eat. My food plan... I started on a sheet, and it was discovered about a year later that I was hypoglycemic. and doctors changed me to six small meals a day instead of three large meals, which I was scared to death that I couldn't do because I had this three meals a day, and I was abstinent, and I wanted to hang on to it. So people in the meetings, in the OA meetings, said, let the doctors be your sponsors, so your food sponsors. So I did it. And the people in the meetings helped me get used to my new food plan. I've been eating that way for um, 20 years now. I eat about two pounds of vegetables every day. I can eat a whole plate, a whole mountain of vegetables and stop eating them and not think about them again. They give me vitamins and minerals and fiber and all kinds of stuff that I need. A little bit of carbos. I need a little carbos. I don't need getty-sized carbos. I don't need a loaf of bread carbos I'm not going to run a marathon tomorrow I need a little bit of carbos and I can get them all from vegetables and I eat a couple ounces of very lean protein every two or three hours and that's basically all I eat and I'm fine with that my meals are not parties parties are with people
1: I got to yeah
0: we party with people that was news to me when I came in people are fun People are compassionate when I'm sad. People are happy for me when something good happens to me. I was trying to get all that from food, and food didn't do anything but make me numb. It didn't have any real compassion. When I got abstinent, all the grieving that I had never done, I had to do then. The first two weeks of being abstinent were awful, but... I survived it, and I never have to do that again. I never have to live through that again as long as I just keep coming to OA and doing what I'm supposed to do, eating on my food plan and sponsoring other people. So the next thing, what I do with the girls I sponsor, we work the steps. And I ask them to write a paragraph or a page about one, two, and three, what makes me think I'm a compulsive eater, and what about my life is unmanageable. And I believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. We don't have to define what that power is. It can be just the other people here. And three, I am making a decision to let the other people here teach me how to live absolutely in the mainstream of life with all the other humans on this planet. And... If I hear those three, that's all I need. Steps one, two, and three don't have to go on for months with people exploring all the world's religions and picking one or figuring out exactly what their spirituality is because that's an ongoing, lifelong thing. We're going to grow and change in those areas as long as we live. Get on with it. So as long as I know they're teachable and they have a food plan and they're on it, I'm ready to go to the fourth step. So from the big book, I wrote down and the girls I sponsor write down every person I've ever known in my life and everything they did that I resent and how it affected me. This is very useful. It took a long time. I had 22 pages of resentments against everybody I've ever known. But the cool thing is when I'm finished with it, that's all my victim issues. That's why I was so crazy. That's why my head was spinning all the time with revenge. That's why I reacted. I lashed out at people when they said completely innocent things. If they had one word in their sentence that reminded me of something in my childhood, I lashed out at them, and I didn't know why I did it, and they didn't know why I did it. They just thought I was weird. So I got all of that out of my system, out of my head, out of my heart, Onto the paper, oh, what a relief. Just writing it was a huge relief. Then I told it to my sponsor, and the girls I sponsored tell it to me, and we add two more columns. What my part in it is, ouch. You mean I brought some of this on myself? When I looked at all these incidences, it's true. Some of them I set myself up, and some of them I started it in the first place. Not all of them. We aren't always wrong, but a lot of them. So if I just take them out and look at them, I can look at my behavior and what I did, then I can change my behavior, then this wretched stuff will stop happening to me because I will be reacting differently. They can keep doing it again as long as they want to, but if I react differently, the results are going to be different. Wow. My life can change. That was the first hope I ever had, that my life could change. So, And we make another list of what I can do differently. So I have here a blueprint for living. My character defects are nothing but behaviors I've done all my life that don't work very well. I can't deny it. There it is in my own handwriting. This time it's not a psychiatrist telling me this is what's wrong with you. It's me telling me. Uh oh, this is what I did that was that didn't work very well. And so I do some creative thinking, what it's the opposites of all these words, this is what I can do instead. It's textbook behavior modification, which I didn't understand at all until I actually did it. So here I have a blueprint for life. And then I worked very hard on changing my behavior. Every time I I wanted to have a knee-jerk reaction and react to something the old way. I had to stop a minute and say, give me a, a moment to think about that. And I don't owe anybody an instant answer. In fact, I don't owe anybody an answer today. I can tell anyone politely, let me think on that this evening and I'll get back to you tomorrow. And I can think about it, call my sponsor, think of the right thing to say, think of the gentle way to say it think of the gracious way to get through this, and get back to them tomorrow. So that's how I slowly changed my behavior and got a whole new personality. I'm a very different person (laughs) than I was. I'm nice enough that I can stand me. And toward the end of my drinking and using and binging, I didn't like me. And not many other people did either. At the end of it, I was kind of losing everything. So I got abstinent and clean and sober, and that's what I do. I still sponsor girls today the same way I was sponsored. The 10th, 11th, and 12th step are kind of maintenance steps, and they're a format for living in the mainstream of life, a format for solving problems, a format for getting along with people. If I have a problem today... The first thing I usually do is try to force everybody to do it my way. And then if that doesn't work, I get really frustrated and I fume for a while. And then I remember, ah, the steps So I think about it. What what person is involved in this problem? Maybe it's not exactly about that person, but there's a person in it somewhere, and if I start with that, I can unravel the rest of this huge problem, and is there anything about it I resent? I can find a resentment in it, even if I think this problem, steps aren't going to work this time. They've worked every other time for 23 years, but they're not going to work this time. If I just find a person and a resentment, then I can go on to how it's affecting me, what is my part in it, and what can I do differently? Wow, now I don't have a problem anymore. I have a solution. What I can do differently is, are there any amends I can make? Is there any footwork I can do? If there's none of those and the problem is just an unresolved problem that is not, there's absolutely nothing I can do to fix it or change it right now, and I just have to cope with it, then it's time for me to resolutely turn my attention to doing some service. Service has saved my fanny I don't know how many times. When I was early in my abstinence, I called my sponsor sometimes and told her, well, I almost killed myself yesterday. She said, why didn't you call me yesterday? And I was a little hard-headed. But when I'm having a rough day, what I can do is do some service. That takes my mind off of me. It takes my mind off the problems. And it makes the world a little better place. If I want to binge really badly and I do some service instead, Then when the service is done, I want to binge again. Well, do some more service. Okay, do some more service. Find some service to do. If I can't find an OA person, find anybody. Just do something for anybody. But get through the day. I did that many times, and the next morning, guess what? I was still abstinent. For all that service I did that I didn't want to do, I'm still abstinent and the world is a little better place for all the service I did. Now I'm starting to get a little bit of self-esteem because I earned it. When I make the world a better place, I earn self-esteem, real self-esteem. That's how we get it. We earn it. It's not handed to us from anywhere. When somebody says, you're really good at what you do, or you're pretty, or they pay me some kind of compliment, that feeds my ego, but it doesn't really give me self-esteem. Self-esteem comes from fixing things, repairing things, cleaning things, making something, helping somebody who's, who's crying. Send them away smiling and help them. Making the world a little better place, that's how I get self-esteem. Real self-esteem. Wow, what a concept. You've taught me so much here. People here have been the good parents that I never had. And, you know, you've taught me everything I know about getting along with people and solving problems and living graciously in the mainstream of life. It works with people, too, the way to repair relationships. I never repaired relationships before I came here. If I noticed something about somebody that I didn't like, I just load them off right there. They never stood a chance with me again because they had a fault. Usually I told them what their fault was before I kicked them out because surely they want to know. Aren't I doing them a favor by telling them how icky they are? Don't they want to get better? <laughs> and I didn't know why people didn't like me. <laughs> but that's why. So <laughs> now when I accidentally screw something up, I don't do things to people anymore. But when I accidentally screw things up, I can go back to the people and make amends and say, I'm sorry, that was my fault. What can I do to fix it? I can make reparations, and I can tell them that I won't do that again. That puts their mind at ease. They don't think I'm going to keep screwing things up. They don't keep looking over their shoulder wondering, what's Peggy going to do to me next? They know I'm not going to do that anymore, and they can start to... After a while of me behaving nicely, they can start to trust me again. When I was making amends, I told my sponsor that I was going to say I was sorry to somebody. She said, sorry is not good enough. I don't use that tone when I sponsor people. I'm nice and kind. My sponsor wasn't always, but at least I heard the words. Sorry isn't quite good enough because we do it to people again and say we're sorry again. We do it to them again and say we're sorry again. That's not living in sobriety. That's not living in abstinence. We say we're sorry. We make reparations. We pay for the damage we did as best we can or we repair it as best we can or replace it. And then we tell them we're not going to do it to them anymore. And then we change our behavior. We never do that again to anyone else as long as we live. And that's how we get to be better people. And that's how we earn people's trust trust is not something they owe us. That's something we earn from people. Wow, some of these lessons were hard at the time, but they're such part of the fabric of my life now. They're not hard at all. I just sometimes months and years go by where I just coast through life feeling good about most everything, have a problem, solve it, go on to something else, solve that one, go on over here, solve this one, fix this, make this nice, make everybody happy over there, and sometimes life just goes on with, like that for months. It's such a nice way to live. Where am I now? So we have these 10, 11, and 12 steps as maintenance steps to use for the rest of our lives. So When we have a problem, we do a 10th step, which is kind of a condensed 4 through 9 And if we think of something that should have been on our inventory that we we didn't think of at the time, we can do a 10th step on it, a 4 through 9, and treat it just like we did all the other things and get it behind us. This is how I have the freedom to live without those knee-jerk reactions. When I occasionally, something reminds me of the icky things in my past or my childhood, I can quietly say to myself, oh, that was on My fourth and fifth steps, I don't have to wallow in that today. Today, my life is what I make of it, and I can resolutely turn my attention to the people around me today and live in the here and now and do the best we can together. And that gets my mind off of wallowing in the past Before I came here, I spent a lot of time wallowing in the past and feeling sorry for myself and feeling angry about myself. I spend very little time that way now. I have a whole bunch of friends and a really good life. Since my daughter has gone to college now, when she was growing up in school, I was driving carpool every day and couldn't do much work. But I had some part-time work, and I was on the board of a... A couple of charity organizations, so I did, I produced shows for them. Had a, a jazz trio, and we played in all the shows I produced. <laughs> That's one of the perks of being the producer. <laughs> so, I didn't know at the time that I was putting together a good resume. But now that that period of my life is kind of over, and I'm segueing into this next phase of my life, it does look really good. So it's kind of serving me. I'm doing a few things now. I'm working in the entertainment industry again, but now I get to be one of the elder statesmen. Instead of being a brat who demanded everything, I get to be one of the producers who helps young people. When I was young, there were older people who had experience helping me. I had energy and cockiness. And they have experience and connections. So now I'm older. I have experience. I get to help people younger than me. It would look really silly for me at my age to be doing what I did in the 70s. It's time to grow up. I know a lot of people who do what I do, and they never grow up. And they're still doing it when they're bald. And I'm kind of embarrassed for them (laughs) But because I've gotten to grow up and mature, being abstinent and being clean and sober allowed me to mature. All those years I was pickling myself and binging and starving, I didn't grow or mature. I was kind of on hold, and I was just as childish in the early 80s as I was um, in the late 60s. But I've had 20 years of growing up. Into a person who's pretty responsible. You taught me here how to be responsible to other people. So I'm segueing into producing and writing, and I have a recording studio. I'm recording myself and young people, and I've partnered with some other people my age who feel the same way I do that it's time for us to produce young people. So it's going really well. It feels good to be doing what I should be doing. It feels right, and it feels natural. There's more changes to go through. My daughter's gone off to college. Oh, my little baby! She grew up. And I worry about her, but we taught her well how to take care of herself, and we've put her in a good school, in a place where she's, you know, as safe as a college student can be, and one of the safer campuses in the country, in upstate New York, in a small town where they don't even lock their doors in this town. Do you believe it? They never have. Some of these houses were built in the 1700s, and they never locked their doors. The locks are still sitting there, (laughs) never used. So life is an adventure. My husband's retiring. This nice man has worked. He's the opposite of me. He's worked in the same company for 36 years and gone from entry level to senior partner and now he's tired and wants to retire so we're doing all the changes with that changes are hard but because I learned in here how to compromise and how to stand for myself not against the other person we're all we're both speaking our mind and we're little by little sorting through what our retirement life is going to look like and where we're going to be and what we're going to do and We're going to, I think we're going to make it. I think it, it feels so normal. Sometimes it's scary for me to be so normal and to have so many normal friends and to fit in with them and to like people here in my heart and in my chest. I like people and I care about people. To be so different from the person I used to be. When I came in here, the only thing that interested me about people was what they had that I could get. I was so self absorbed. I'm um, I'm one of those bulldozer types who just took everything I could get, lied, cheated, stole, and had no sympathy for anybody's feelings. And now I feel everything. I care about people. Sometimes I hurt, and sometimes I'm happy for them. So I'm ha- I seem to be happy more of the time than I'm unhappy. Thank you all for being here today, and thank you for reminding me to stay abstinent for one more day no matter what. There's four minutes for questions if you have any. Some people ask me nutritionist questions. The girls I sponsor get the benefit of a free nutritionist. (laughs) One of the first things they they usually ask me is about diet pills. Do they work? (laughs) And I'll tell you, I've read the labels of all of them, and they have like a snattering of vitamins and amino acids and things, the things we get in our food anyway. And there's not anything in in any of them that can make you lose more weight than exercising, burning more calories than you eat. That's the only way humans lose weight. If I burn 2,000 calories a day and I eat 1,900 calories a day, I will slowly and steadily lose weight without feeling deprived, and that's the slow, healthy way to lose weight. Oh hi, yes. Hi. Um, I've been told I have never been here as well. I've been told that I need to six small meals, and I don't. Can you tell me what the meal you Because I'm different. It. Yeah. It's not a fruit, but fruit. It's like little meal versus snack. I mean, well, I eat a couple. Oh, yeah, uh, hypoglycemic diet, which is actually um, healthy for every person, and it's good for hypoglycemics too. I eat two or three ounces of protein every two or three hours during the day, and by lean protein, I mean some meat, some kind of meat. If I if I could, I would be a vegetarian. In my heart, I'm a vegetarian, but I would become unconscious if by the end of the day if I didn't eat protein every few hours. So I thank the animals very much for making the ultimate sacrifice for me. And I donate to animal rights places because I feel grateful to them and bad about eating them every day. It's the only way I can stay alive, and I'm not sure that I deserve it more than they do. But that's the way it's set up right now, so I do it. So, yeah, that's what I do. And a half a pound of vegetables at a time. That's a huge looking meal. And it gives me two or 300 calories, which lasts me two or three hours. And that's what I do every day. I carry protein bars all the time. So if, I'm, if my meal is delayed or I can't get to food, I eat a protein bar, and that gives me an hour or two. And I've been doing that for 20 years, and I'm very healthy. You can get all the vitamins and minerals and amino acids and calcium and fiber and everything else you need from just vegetables and protein. There's other kinds of proteins. My vegetarian girls that I sponsor... Eat corn and rice and beans at the same time. They have a complete set of amino acids, and together they form a complete protein. But they have a lot more calories than lean meat. A couple ounces of lean meat is a couple hundred calories, and it will hold me for a couple of hours. The reason we can't eat fruit on an empty stomach is because fruits are pure sugar. They go straight into your bloodstream. So sometimes I will eat like half a piece of fruit before I work out that's when I'm about to eat the sugar that's when I'm about to burn a lot of sugar so it makes sense to me to eat it before I work out I know some people who eat lots of fruit before they go to bed and then they lay there sleeping while those sugar calories are turning to fat oh it's time thank you all very much